So I think when I think back of my school story of like going in a certain school, what's the worst thing that can happen? The worst they can tell me is no. And I can just keep trying and, and keep, keep trying. Sigue luchando, adelante. Hola y bienvenidos a Peruvians of USA, peruanos de Estados Unidos. Un podcast en español, inglés y spanglish donde compartimos las diversas historias del inmigrante peruano. Mi nombre es Natalie Sofía y soy una chica peruana que vive en los Estados Unidos por más de 20 años. Welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast in Spanish, English, and Spanglish where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. My name is Natalie Sofía, a fellow Peruvian living in the U.S. for more than 20 years. So let's get started. Welcome, Claudia Ramos, to Peruvians of USA. I am thrilled that you're here today. Thank you so much for reaching out and for being one of our guests. So please introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, so my name is Claudia Ramos. I actually live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was born in Peru and I came here at the age of two. So I've lived in the States all my life and pretty much just become a cultured to America, but always had that sense of something else because I was raised differently. Um, you know, inside the doors, soy peruana. Outside the doors, I'm American. So it's, it's a mixture, but it's like you have a combination of so many things that you're not quite that other person, you know, who's around you. My family came and they were here in 1979, but before then, my parents actually um, came before then to kind of explore the journey. Um, But for myself, I actually, so I came to um, South Florida, to Miami, as everyone else does. And then parents were like, no, we're, we need to move somewhere else. I think that was just, they were trying to find a fit and find a place. And they ended up outside of Atlanta. And Atlanta was a little bit more populated. It was growing. And this was in the 80s, like 1979, 80s. I was a baby, so I'm just along for the ride. And I just learned all the habits and things from my parents. So I ended up staying there until I was like 18 years old when I went to college and did my undergraduate in psychology at Belmont Abbey in, Char- in outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. And I didn't ever expect to leave Georgia because I thought I was going to go to school somewhere outside of Atlanta. And I, when I went, I was, I was just surprised that I was going to even go there. It's a Catholic school, so it's a very different environment. But at the same time, I didn't know what to expect. So went there and that's where I became more diverse in different type of immigrant cultures. Living at, outside of Atlanta was a little different, right? So growing up, you see the different things. My parents moved from Atlanta to the country. So maybe an hour and a half outside of Atlanta, outside of Athens, Georgia. And this growing outside of there was a little different. So from that atmosphere to then college, college experience for anybody is just different, right? You're like, oh, wow, new people, right? Oh, wow, new experiences. Oh, wow, there's immigrants. <laughs> there's people who like, they know how it is to feel different. Okay, well, it's not my different, but at least it's something different. They came from a different country. We can relate. There's something relatable about that. So obviously in between that, the period of that time, 
you don't meet a lot of Peruvian people outside of outside of Atlanta, especially. But you know of Peruvian people. There's a few families here and there or whatever. And now there's a whole lot more, obviously. And but anyway, I ended up in Charlotte um, for for school. And then I ended up in Chapel Hill for my master's degree in rehab psychology and counseling. And then after I finished that, I came back to Charlotte, not expecting that because I applied everywhere, all over the country, right? Because you know, you're young and you want to experience life. So I ended up in Charlotte and here I am really just loving what I do and continuing to help people in, in many diverse areas of mental health. Awesome. That is such a great intro. And there's a lot I want to ask you there because I do think I do want you to share your professional sure. path before we jump into your Peruvian story. Yeah. So you said that you uh, major in psychology in undergrad at Belmont Abbey College, uh, which yeah. is in Belmont, North Carolina. What made you want to major in psychology? So before I went to Belmont Abbey, my whole idea since I was a young kid, I was I'm going to be a pediatrician. (laughs) And so when I went to Belmont Abbey, I began to major in biology. It's a liberal arts school. So you have so many facets, so many areas that you get to explore. And I took some biology classes. I'm like, oh, I don't know how I'm feeling about this. It's great. But I was like, I don't know if I'm feeling this. I didn't know that's what I wanted to do. So I talked to my advisor and then they were like, well, you know, there's other things that you can do that's not necessarily being a doctor or a pediatrician because I love working with kids. So I, I just had decided, you know, like I wanted to do something. Let me explore psychology. Let's just see what that's all about. My advisor said, why don't you try that? You can always explore that. And I did. And then I decided to major in psychology. Um, And I was like, I can do a lot of stuff with this. I can major in different things. I can, I can go into more specific things. So I decided to major in psychology because I just, I enjoy working with people. Psychology is so broad. It's just like, what do you do with psychology? Like, what do you do with that? It's just so general. Like anybody could do that. Mm, Can you though? I mean, you can. But if you want to do something more specific, you would have to go into something more clinical. So after I graduated from Belmont Abbey, I went home um, and I stayed with my parents for about a year. And I worked actually for the United States Department of Agriculture and as an administrative assistant, um, like student. And I just did that. And I was like, no, I got to keep on working. I got to kind of figure out my plan. Like, I'm not going to be working in an office. I, I want to help people right? I want to counsel people. I want to do therapy, um, but I just wasn't sure which route to take. And I ended up trying to find schools online. And I was like, I'll just find schools online. I'll stay home. You know, this is good. This is when it was all really fresh and new, right? In the very beginning. And my director who was there, she was like, okay, I have to sign off on some of these papers. Um, that I'm working there. And she's like, no, I'm not going to sign off on these. I said, what? She's like, I think you need to go to go into school. Now she came from a really different background. Right. And back then I was like, what? She's like, I just feel like that type of work needs to be live. You're going to work with people. Like how, what kind of experience can you get with that? Right. 
And so back then I'm like, gosh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> like I'm 21, 22 years old. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Right. So I'm applying for schools. It's hard because you're like, you have to take the GRE and you have to get all that process going. And, and I'm still trying to like take these undergraduate like courses that kind of will help in my process. So I ended up applying to a school down in South Georgia, Valdosta State, and I got there and I ended up getting accepted, but it was a part-time because I guess they only had a certain amount of people. So I ended up going there for a year, but I just felt they were doing, they were still going through some accreditation process and things. And I just wanted to go in a different route. That was a marriage and family therapy um, area I'm focused, but I was like, but I wanted something else, right? So I still applied to different colleges and I applied everywhere that had like more psychology, clinical type of, you know, backgrounds, more of a medical. And I applied to three different schools and I didn't realize it, but I just ended up getting to the school that I really, really wanted to get into. And I was very shocked and surprised and I got into Chapel Hill and it's through the School of Medicine and through Allied Health. And I never thought that I would get in because it's just like one of those things that you only kind of dream about. And it's like, and some people might take that for granted, but when you're like, oh, wow, that's so great. You know, like try to apply there. I don't know if I'm ever going to get in, right? Because there's so much competition. But I guess in that sense, my diversity kind of helped me. So I was able to be part of that. And I was just excited to be able to get in. The, probably the hardest two years of my life, scholastically, um, I felt like I had no time for to breathe. <laughs> um, but was it worth it at the end? Heck yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure that it, it was the hardest two years and yeah. you could not breathe. Yeah, I, I different, completely different that not for a master's in, you know, psychology for mm -hmm. me, but I finished grad school in 2019 and, and, nice. but it was also like the most intense two years for different reasons. Cause I went to yeah. business school and it's completely different. Oh, that's completely different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, I'm having to go in there, take the bus, you know, like get into my class, walk to school, like this traditional type of things that, you know, like your parents or your grandparents talk about, I had to walk in the snow or, or whatever in the whatever. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was definitely very challenging, but I, it was very well worth it. I decided to, you know, take that route. Um, so, so I have, oh, I have two questions. So you mentioned that you were applying to online schools prior, were those like accredited schools or were they the online schools like, uh, Phoenix, those types of schools, I guess I'm curious. Yeah. yeah so I don't know if they were necessarily accredited. I don't think that they were. And so, and they were, I want to say maybe in California or somewhere, I'm not specifically sure, but I think that they might've been going through accreditation as well. I felt like I'm like, I'm just trying to get into grad school. <laughs> I'm just trying to live my life. I'm just trying to better my life, go through that next generation of like doing better to bring it to the next generation past that. But yeah, I'm not, I'm pretty sure they weren't. And it, and during that time, there were not a lot of schools that were online in the early 2000s. You didn't really hear of that too much. And if you did, they're like, mm, I don't know how those programs are. 
Yeah, I, I think like, for example, the, the co-worker, was it your manager or a co-worker who, who said to you, maybe you should go to school like physically and not do an online yeah. program. I, that was, it seems like that was such a blessing because yeah. I think in the early 2000s, these schools were still not, they couldn't, not, they, they, I don't think they were accredited and, and then yeah. they became a little shady, I think. So, yeah. I mean, of course now all the, I think all the schools are online, have online programs, yeah. but I think. Uh, earlier it was it was it could have been a little bit difficult to know if there were real schools quote-unquote right yeah yeah you also mentioned how um you got into the school you wanted you got into Chapel Hill which is a, such a great school and yeah. and so many of us when we look at those top schools we're like oh maybe I can't get in it's so difficult like why gave you that courage to be like you know what like I'm going to apply and the worst thing that can happen is I just don't get accepted and then I go somewhere else, but at least I gave it a shot. Like what, what may give you that courage? So this is funny. You never know what you can do until you push yourself a little bit more. And I think that is maybe the cusp of how you feel about things, right? So I was in graduate school down in South Georgia and I was feeling lonely. I was feeling sad. I was feeling like I couldn't even adapt to that environment because I did not fit in that particular area. Very nice people, but it was, everybody was very family oriented and I wasn't there, right? I was like, I'm 20 something years old. Where are all the single people? That's where my mind was at. And I'm like, I, I can't relate things that you can't relate to. That's just life, right? So I was feeling a little upset and it's like, why not? Why not apply to this? What's the worst thing that can happen? No. The worst thing that can happen is no. And then I move on and I find something else. So why not? Why not try? Yeah. And I think that's such a great message. When I was also looking at grad schools, I went to a, a talk and the speaker said, let somebody else say no to you. Like, yeah. It's don't let, don't tell yourself no, let, let, let somebody else do that. So yeah, take your shot and, and, uh, in any, in any goal that you have. Yeah. So then you graduated in 2004 with your master's and I know you did AmeriCorps. Uh, can you tell us, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, your experience with AmeriCorps and, and tell the audience what is AmeriCorps? Cause I actually did not know about it until like way after I graduated. Yeah. So I didn't expect him doing AmeriCorps while I was in grad school. Um, and I felt like I needed to do something, right? But I needed to be able to try to find a something to do where I can make a little bit of money. And that opportunity presented itself. And it was something related along the lines that I was working with, you know, actual graduate school. I was like, okay, why not? Let me just apply, right? To see this and I do it. And I was like, really excited, but to go back. So AmeriCorps is in simple terms, in reference to just think of the Peace Corps in the United States, pretty much, right? So you're helping certain areas of the United States, underprivileged areas with certain areas of focus. In my instance, in my case, I was actually assigned to a domestic violence agency that provided that support for the areas in Chapel Hill and those um, surrounding areas to especially immigrant women. So there's a lot of women who, you know, in that particular area, there is certain factories and chicken industries 
that a lot of people from Central America will go specifically to work there, right? And so you have a lot of migrant farmers who are working in those areas. And so you're gonna have a lot of different diversity of, of how things from people are treated. So I was able to work at this domestic violence agency, well, excuse me, serve in this domestic violence agency um, and be a counselor, especially if people went to court, if there was any type of like restraining orders, et cetera, and be a support for someone who needed you know, that, especially to our uh, Latino population. So be able to do that and help co-facilitate some groups um, just about boundary settings and what you know domestic violence is um, and just help the women and the children be a part of that. One that end of that summer actually was able to be one of the summer camp directors for the kids who participate in a summer camp. So I was able to do summer camp for the week with the kids and it was great. So just to be able to provide that support for kids who might not make those means um, and not you know make those situations helpful and how they are and they just have to endure like what they've struggled through and seeing that in their household and having a place to escape having a place to have a refuge with other kids who have gone through this experience um, of domestic violence so I was able to you know do that and um, kids are that's what led me into want to to work with kids I really wanted to work with children so I know that um, I have my best friends also uh, a therapist and mm -hmm. I'm always curious. I, one question I, I have asked her is like, you, you hear a lot of the people's story and that could be also a burden or a heavy load that you carry along mm -hmm. with them and you help them carry, right? And here you are, you know, helping with domestic violence and you're in your, you're young, right? And so did that, cost you to be jaded in any way? How did you separate your work and your and your personal life? Because I just heard, like, fortunately, I did not grow up in a home with domestic violence, but um, my mom would say comments about men here and there. And like, yeah. I, so even that little, those little comments, yeah. I caused me to be jaded for a little bit, mm -hmm. right? It's so, <laughs> and those yeah. are just comments, right? Oh, yeah. And yeah. so you're listening to stories, you're going to court. So tell us about that. Yeah, so I was able to, actually, I'll let me go a little bit further. I did an internship when I was an undergraduate for the Domestic Violence Agency mm -hmm. here in Charlotte. And so I was able to kind of get a taste and feel of how that was to work with men, women who were exposed to domestic violence. So that's why my interest kind of peaked and I was able to continue to expand on that. But to be able to work with women who were experiencing those type of things, because we don't know sometimes the way we treat one another and to take out the whole gender thing, right? Even if we're treating someone else a certain way, if we're passive aggressive, we're aggressive in conversation, et cetera. We, sometimes we don't realize that if we're just exposed to that and we almost think it's so normal to us, right? So I just felt, in that time of my life to be very supportive for women um, as far as helping the woman. When I would hear the stories, yes, I will say I'm like, ese desgraciado, what? Like, what, what is he doing? I can't believe he did that. Que cosa, you know, just things like in your mind, you're like, mm -hmm. yes, 
course, this is very tough, you know, and just, you know, take that in and or hear the really sad stories of women and men, you know, who have been through a lot of pain and anger, um, have been through that physical, mental, sexual abuse. Um, it's tough um, with someone else going through it. And then they're not sharing that and they keep it inside. And then when they're finally ready, they do share it. And when they, it comes out, it's just like, they just let it go. And it's, it's their time, right? So you feel appreciative of someone being able to be very vulnerable with you, being able to open up with you to that capacity. So you feel very, you know, you feel good that you're able to help somebody. I did, you know, at times I would see those things, right? in relationships and people and places, things, you know, personal experiences. But sometimes when you're in your own box, you don't see those things that might be happening to you personally. You can see it anyone else, you know, with anyone else. So sometimes it's, it's recognizing those feelings. But yes, there were times that, and when you start feeling that way, like jaded or I can't believe it, et cetera, you almost have to bring yourself back. And that's what you know, clinicians try to do to work themselves out and making sure that they have their self-care time and taking care of themselves. It's hard. It's definitely hard. But, you know, it's making those healthy boundaries and working them well. Yeah. Now you gave me so much clarity as to why this this friend that I mentioned, she's all about self-care. She knows how to relax. She <laughs> she cares about her sleep a lot and mm -hmm. just nurturing, like setting her home in a very nurturing yeah. way. And now it all makes sense because she needs this, right? Like she's yeah. under so much, yeah. I want to say stress and with her clients and everything they're sharing with her. Uh, so yeah, of course she needs a very relaxing, nurturing home. Yeah. So. yeah. That yeah. makes total sense. Because so, it all comes to you. It all is like, so you're receiving everyone's information, right? So it's all coming to you. Here, I'm going to tell you the story about my life. It started at age three and I'm getting all this information and this happened and this happened and this happened. And you take that in, right? And then you leave and then you go home and you, and you just, you have their story in you. You have their story in you and you have to let that go, you know? So yes, self-care is super important for that. So just to touch a lot, to continue the conversation on domestic violence, and you just never know who's listening to, to this podcast, right? Yeah. But it's very easy, and I've heard it, you know, sometimes in my family, um, when there are women who have partners who are violent towards them, you know, ¿por qué no se va? like, why doesn't this yeah. person just leave? Right. Right. Um, and it's very easy from an external perspective to say that, I guess, yes. what, what would you say to someone who finds themselves in, in an abusive relationship, yes. um, you know, whether they're men or women, um, mm -hmm. and also like, what do you say to someone who has those violent tendencies, but they, they, they are able to see themselves and they're wanting to be better, but maybe don't know the first step. So I know that's a very heavy question, but I, I just, just because I have the opportunity to talk to yeah. you and, and I don't know who could be listening and who yeah. could be helpful to. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And sometimes you don't see that. It could be something very minor, but it's making sure that they're okay. Making sure that they're taking time to take care of themselves. 
And if they know that they're in a situation that is not good, you know, and they want to leave, you know, reach out to people for support. And even if it's having a plan to leave, right? And they might not be ready for it. They're, they're ready for, you know, certain things in their life and they want to continue with that person, even though that person might not be good for them. Just always have a backup plan. Always be ready when you have to step out just for safety. You always have to take care of you. The only one who can take care of you is you. And the only person you can change is you. So always being safe, always having people that you can reach out to just in case of an emergency and some place to go and just taking care of yourself. And I'm sure there are resources out there that maybe um, you can share with me and I'll link them up on the episode, you know, notes so people can, can, um, can access them and share them with if they need them. Yes. Um, for, for the person who, who sees their violent nature perhaps coming out, like what would you say it's the first step to address yeah. those yeah. issues? So, you know, um, that can be very difficult because you want to make sure, first of all, that person's okay, right? Take away the domestic violence, right? Is that person okay? Is there something that's making them upset? Hey, hey man, are you okay? What can we do? Like, what, what can we do? And just trying to deescalate that person in, in whatever way that you can, right? Um, even if it's just going for a walk, taking a breath. Hey, man, let's go talk. Hey, man, let's go do something else. Taking away from that situation. But for somebody who might be elevated like that, you know, unless you have the experience, like, be very careful. Yet at the same time, be a lending ear for somebody. Sometimes people just want to be heard. And sometimes it's not about the dishes in the sink. It's not about the car not being taken care of. It's not about that. It's more, right? It's more about, did you listen to me? Did I listen to you? The attention that you have for one another. And it can go definitely deeper than that. But with someone who can be violent, just always be, be very careful. But you ask them more, yeah, hey, man, are you okay? What can I do? Like, let's talk about it. So. So um, I know that currently you are um, the founder of Vida Coaching and Consulting Core. So I do want to, uh, I do want you to share a little bit about your company, what they focus on, and and sort of who your who is your um, target market, yeah. um, and also. Um, I know that you are a guest in La Hora Social. I wanted to say La Hora Loca. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the... But you're a radio guest uh, in La Hora Social, you yeah. know, in a Latina radio station yeah. uh, where you discuss uh, mental health topics. So I guess before you go into, you know, talking about Vida Coaching, your company, yeah. Tell us about what are some of the discussions you have in this radio show uh, relating to like the Latino culture or the Latina community yeah. and mental health? And what yeah. are some of the most common questions, issues that, that are, are discussed there? Oh, so we've discussed different things on, on mental health, even if it's something as simple as um, depression or anxiety. They, they go hand in hand. So just being able to talk about, hey, this is how it looks like when you're sad or this is the time we get seasonal depression 
actually, this is technically the time of year that we get seasonal depression in North America. Um, and what that can look like is not wanting to do much of anything and being sad or lethargic and just having that conversation, how that looks like. And it's not that, you know, it is flojo. Um, it's that you're just, you're sad because you've had this whole, like the holidays have hit and it's been great. And I've been with my family and everything is wonderful and things like that pre COVID. And so that's completely different. And then you, you know, go through a series of emotions when you're not with your family or why you're not with your family. So that's been one area. Another interesting area that we were able to talk about was midlife crisis and quarter life crises that, you know, happen. And so when certain things aren't met, pretty much, you're going to find something to fill in the void in the gap. Or if you did something and it's just not meeting the need, then you are going to fill something in some other way and how it can look like it can look like different for everyone, right? It's like, oh, okay, I have the emptiness. All my kids are gone. What am I going to do? Let me buy a car. Let me get a dog. Let me fill something or let me go out to the bar. Let me go and dancing. Let me go do whatever right? They're going to fill it some sort of way, depending on if a need has been met or not, right? If you're in a relationship with someone or not. So a different array of subjects is what we've talked about. So it was very interesting about how people would ask um, us just different questions. It's like, you know, what can we do when we're sad, you know, and how, how do we take care of it? And I just don't have the motivation or the energy. It's just like having accountability, coming up with methods, coming up with goals, coming up with things. Let me preface, easier said than done, right? It's just like, okay, let's write all these goals and let's do them. But it's almost like that want in you to be able to do them. So if you're listening and you're, and you're doing these things, it's something that you are definitely are in a stage of change, as we call it, um, therapeutically, that we are contemplating or pre-contemplating the idea. So, you know, just the idea of being able to do that is great. So even if it's accountability, hey, let me get a walking buddy with me. Hey, let me make sure that I schedule that appointment with my friend to help go have some coffee. Make sure that I have dinner with so-and-so next week, having the accountability. So definitely those are the type of questions that we used to get. So it was really, it was really neat when we used to do that myself and another colleague of mine, um, we ended up doing it. So it was pretty exciting. That sounds like such a great resource for the community, right? To be able to call and ask, as a professional about these yeah. questions. I, I definitely have experience with both the quarter life crisis with myself. And I wanted to ask like, um, did, adult, did the Latino parents understand? Because I remember when I was going through it, my mom is like, ¿De qué te quejas? ¿Tienes trabajo? ¿Eres joven? Like, <laughs> and they don't no. understand. They're like, why, 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 are you, why are you going through this <laughs> period of life? No, mi mamá me miraba como, ¿qué? ¿Qué, qué midlife? ¿Qué quarter life crisis? Ya anda, vete a no sé cuántos. You know, like, it was just... I mean, and honestly, when I'm going through that or I say something therapeutically, I know that if I do say that, my mom would just look at me like, what? 
what did you just say? Come on, you know? So it's, it's funny. Uh, different generations definitely is very different to understand and certain labels for things, but yes. It's so funny. And, but my dad actually went through, um, I don't want to necessarily call it, even though it was a midlife crisis, but it was connected to health and he had not been taking care of his health. So he's like pressure went up, died, mm. he was like borderline diabetes. And mm-hmm. then he experienced depression and anxiety. And it was really the first time my family kind of had to deal with it. Yeah. And part of it was because he, uh, I think it's because he, he sort of lost that sense of purpose. Like, what is my purpose now? What is yes. my goal? Like my, yeah. ch- my children are grown. They're, yeah. they're taking care of themselves. Like what now? And right. fortunately my family kind of came together to, understand what was happening with him and 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 help him as best as they could and the way that he addressed that um was actually through physical fitness he got into Mm -hmm. like running and working out and he was able to um stop taking medication for like high high blood pressure and like he no longer was uh pre-diabetic uh which i'm really proud of proud of him because i know it it was such a mental hurdle that he had to overcome um but yeah, I guess I just share that because I know that maybe somebody in the audience has a parent that is going through this and, um, and we as kids, just like they were there for us <laughs> when we were little or going yeah. through or side-eyeing us when we're going through our quarter life crisis. Like I, I felt like I was glad that I was able to be there for my dad during that time. Yeah. I do have a question that I don't know if you have addressed. I wanted to discuss survivor's guilt. So many of us are immigrants. Yeah. Many, many of us left Peru during very tough times. Yes. And we still have family who stay there. Some of us are financially a lot better than we were in Peru and, and definitely a lot better than our family still there. And so I know I suffer of like survivor's guilt, like, should I be doing more for my family in Peru? But I have to take care of myself here. I have my own like goals and my own responsibilities here. Like, what is your advice to someone like me (laughs) struggling with that? (laughs) Yeah. So there has to be a balance. You know, we make certain decisions because we made those decisions, um, from the very beginning, right? Your family made that, that decision to come here for however they decided to come here. Um, And they chose that for you and your family, et cetera. Your other family who are still there, they chose the life to stay, right? And for however reason or whatever parameters, at the same time, you feel like, but my family who's out here, what am I gonna do? Like, I still wanna help them. You have to do a balance. You're not gonna be like, I'm gonna give you all the things that I have, here you go. And then you have nothing. Like, what, what does that give you? Like take away all those other things and you see the things that are going on in in certain countries and and things like that. So it's almost like it's, you have to create a balance. It's not like, but you don't want to be taken advantage of either. Right. So it's like, ah, you have money, you have a microwave. (laughs) Okay. That's pretty typical here. I'm just trying to make it right. We're just trying to make it. It's just explaining to them life is very different here but I, I can do what I can to help you and having a healthy boundary with your family there. Because unfortunately, sometimes our family, when they see that you're doing really well, they try to 
unfortunately think that, oh, well, you, why don't, aren't you giving to me? You're supposed to be helping me. Yes. But there's a balance. I'm not going to give you everything I have either because we're all trying to make it. We're all trying to make it in life. So I think it's a healthy balance and talking about it, talking about it helps. So just keeping a balance, a healthy balance, healthy boundaries and talking about it, like it's tough, you know? Um, Yeah. I think one thing I've done is um, I set like a budget for Mm -hmm. it. So if, if somebody needs help or there's uh, something, somehow, some way that I want to support, this is my budget. So then I'll say like, all right, that, that will be my limits that I am comfortable with. And I'm also trying to set aside that budget. So like, it doesn't impact other goals that I have. So that's kind of what I've been trying to do. (laughs) No, that's, that's an excellent plan. Natalie, like that's what you have to do because then that's just people taking advantage if you don't just at any capacity, take away your family. You know, people were trying to be like, oh, well, Natalie, you make some money. So (laughs) no, I'm just trying to make it here. Here's, I can give you this. Okay. So So then tell us now about Vita Coaching and Consulting Core. Yeah, so that's very new, but very exciting. And I am doing more of a goal development um, with individuals in different capacities, whatever they're needing. Um, So if it's something as simple as trying to re-explore their new kind of job or meeting certain goals to make for their health and wellness, um, or if it's just exploring things that they want to work on to get through, you know, some of the things even going on through COVID um, and just coming up with goals and plans. And so kind of be able to implement those things with people and just um, make it in a very exciting way where, you know, the person's very motivated, the person, you know, who would come to me would be very motivated to reach these goals and having accountability. That's mainly the the basic is having that accountability because it's up to you. If you want to do those things, I just hold you accountable. It's like, all right, here we go. This is what we can do or and guide you in the right direction about if you're needing certain areas of service. And if it's something that you might need more extensive you know, therapy, then, you know, refer you somewhere else or refer you to something more specialized um, for your needs. Yeah. And to anybody who's listening and has not tried life coaching, because it would be, it would fall under life coaching, correct? Mm -hmm. Um, So I did for a couple of weeks, a couple of years ago, and it's, it was so helpful just to hear somebody who's not doesn't have any stake in your in your life and your decisions kind of be a soundboard for you I would definitely recommend that to anybody out there who's considering it and you have to find the right match but I think it's it was so helpful and I'm actually considering doing some something similar again because I again when you find yourself in a fork in the road (laughs) you want to be able to talk to someone so yeah and it's it's helpful to have someone who's not biased right you have every family member and friends who are there to support you. Yay, Natalie, you know, like, that's great. But then you have someone who's going to be there for you. It's like, let's talk about what's going on, Natalie. What do you want to work on? What can you do to get to, this is what I want to do and get through those barriers and work through it. Yes, for sure. A few weeks ago, I saw on, on social media, somebody posted um, that, um, therapists and mental health professionals this year had to help people go through not only a pandemic 
but also political unrest, um, you know, and, and they, there was no training, no ahead of time, you know, like, hey, this is coming. And you also had to go through this along with us and yet yeah. help help us off the ledge. <laughs> yeah. So, while we were there. While you were also we there. Were there. Hold on. Let's not go there. <laughs> so tell us how 2020 has impacted your profession. Because, <laughs> oh, wow. you know, you were there on the ledge with us and, and yeah. you have helped so many people off the ledge. Who has helped you off the ledge? <laughs> yeah, no. So um, 2020 was definitely a very memorable year um, in very many ways, um, especially through COVID. And it's trying to figure out how to be safe, right? And not feel like you are losing it at the same time while you're helping somebody who's completely lost it, right? <laughs> and be like, hold on, no, 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 we're not doing that today. So it. It was definitely very challenging. So there was, I work in a hospital system that was seeing that all the time, right? And not only were we trying to be safe, we were trying to keep patients safe as well. So it's what's going, what protocol is going to change today? Are we wearing masks? Are we wearing goggles? Are we changing out scrubs every single time we come out? Are we doing certain things? And it's just like, I don't know. Is that happening today? I don't know. Okay, make sure that you're wiping everything down. And you still have to deal with the people who are coming in who are so upset. Or you, sometimes that's not impossible. And they're in your face because they're psychotic, right? So trying to balance that all out with not trying to get COVID. So um, it was very tricky in the sense of just having a balance. So dealing with that 10 hours a day. Um, and then when you were done, just the exhausted. Yeah, just exhausted. So then I would come home and I would work out hard <laughs> to let out my everything. So I did was I did hit and boot camp type of workouts. When I got home and sometimes I even ran like after that or before um, because I needed to, I needed to release everything because it was an extra layer of something. So, and I continue to still, you know, do that pretty regularly for balance to let it out because there's a lot of emotions. I also tried to do a lot of different things, be it, it was cooking and baking things that made me feel good. Things that reminded me of good memories, not being home for certain holidays was hard. And so be like, Hey mom, we're on zoom, like press the button. Let's figure this out. You know, it's just, okay. I think we can, Oh, there you are. You know, it's great. And so trying to embrace the new differences with that. And then for me, it was a little different in the sense of I'm by myself. So all my family lives outside the Atlanta area and beyond. I have no family here in Charlotte. So I didn't have that. And that's a different layer of feeling like you're by yourself. And then you don't have your family, at least that you could go see like every other weekend. Atlanta from to Charlotte is about three and a half hours. Can't do that. So trying to embrace something that reminds you of home. So that would be something as simple as like 
I guess I'm going to learn how to make a hiva gallina today because I'm going to learn how to do that. Or like, you know, maybe I'm going to make that really good lasagna that my sister makes, you know, I'm going to make that or that, you know, banana nut bread, whatever, right? Something that made me feel better. And I have to continue to do those things just to, to feel a little bit of ease and self-care through all this because I got to take care of myself because I'm taking care of people. Yeah. And, and, and having connection, right. Especially if you don't have family nearby, that's yeah. Staying in touch with family. It's not the same, but it, it helps, you know, it helps. It's not the same, but I'm sure people have thank you. Uh, I just want to thank you. Any, anybody who's been in either the mental health arena or healthcare arena, like in 2020 and talking so many of us off the ledge and, and <laughs> not jumping yourself. <laughs> right. Not jumping. Not so, jumping. so just thank you. I mean, like you have helped so many people just survive this year. Yeah. So, and I hope that you're getting that gratitude uh, I know it's your calling, but I also do hope that you, around the community around you and, and your clients, you know, are expressing that gratitude because, yeah, I don't know where would we, where we would be without mental health uh, professionals and healthcare professionals. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Sure. All right. So let's pivot a little bit to life in Peru and your, yeah. your, your immigration story. So I, yeah. know, I know you came here when you were really little, but share with us what was your family's life there? Like, and also why did they decide to come to the U.S.? You know, I always ask, like, why not um, Spain? Many people were going to Europa. Many people were going to Venezuela, Argentina, Mexico. So I'm always curious, like, how families decide where to go. So... My story starts way before I was born in the sense of my dad wanted to come to the States um, when he was younger. He was in his 20s and he had already had that in mind. And in between preparing for that, et cetera, he met my mom (laughs) and he was still making the plans to come to the United States. So he's like, I'm still working on these plans. We can still date though. That's totally fine. So they... He left and he went to New York in 1959. And, you know, they were dating um, and sending each other letters, et cetera. And they were just trying to figure out, okay, what are we doing? Are you going to be staying there? You know, are you going to come back? So they decided they were going to get married by proxy. And I don't know if you know what that is. Uh, explain it to us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's when you have fill-ins for people, um, and you getting married at the same date and time. So on September 23rd, they both got married at the same time and they had people standing in for them. So my mom was in Peru and my dad at the time was in Connecticut. So they had fill-ins. My mom had her, I guess, father-in-law and that with my grandfather and then my dad had this little old lady who worked with him at the, the place he worked at and he, that was his stand-in so every celebration is a little different I was like so I see the pictures and things and my mom getting married and I was like where's dad who's dad in these pictures when you're younger you don't understand those things it's like and then you hear the story later but then about less than a year or so then my mom went up there because that's his wife now right 
So they stay there for a couple of years. And because of just differences in the sense of, you know, my dad had other things going on, et cetera. And my mom, I think, wanted to have her kids in Peru. They decided to come back to Peru. So they drove back from Connecticut. What? They drove from Connecticut to Peru? They drove from Connecticut to the Panama Canal. Oh, okay. So, because you can't really, and back yeah, then. Yeah, right, right, right. So it took, it took them about three months to get there. And that was kind of like their honeymoon. So let's explore America. <laughs> um, which I feel like it's one of the most amazing stories that I hear, right? I'm like, wow, it's just like, so back then there was a lot of, different cultures and acceptance and things like that. So they still had to be very careful, obviously. And I think obviously, it's just one of those things that, you know, it just took them a while to get there. Obviously the cars don't go as fast and they just, they're taking their time and they're stopping and visiting places, et cetera. So, I mean, I think it was a pretty, you know, unforgettable type of journey that they definitely took. Um, so they got to Panama Canal and then they flew from Panama Canal to Peru and they stayed there until 1979 pretty much and we ended up in Miami and just due to just I guess job opportunities and opportunities that parents decide hey we're just going to go to Georgia to Atlanta see what opportunities there are over there there's a cousin's friend somebody who lives over there will go over there so went over there and just began a new life, not knowing where my parents lived at and where we moved, ended up eventually, like my parents had a house, et cetera, that it was just very profiled, very different, accepting of different races and cultures, right? Unfortunately, there's a lot of things that were going on in that particular area and not realizing like how you stuck out. And my parents spoke Spanish all the time. And even when I was little, I was almost fearful. And I would say, mommy, don't, don't speak in Spanish. Don't speak in Spanish. Cause I was, I, they're gonna, un, they're not gonna understand you. And my mom is probably thinking, well, that's the point. <laughs> like, I don't want to understand me. But I think for me, it was really hard to embrace like speaking in Spanish or speaking or accepting my cultural diversity in that capacity until my grandmother was going to come and visit when I was about nine years old. And my mom said, now your grandmother doesn't speak any English. I know you can understand me. I speak to you in Spanish. You respond to me in English. You're going to have to speak in Spanish. And I looked at her with these big eyes and I'm like, she doesn't know. <laughs> like, I was like very surprised. Like, so just trying to grasp that concept. So when my grandmother came, of course, my Spanish had to come out. But then she also would help me learn through the little infamous book of Coquito. I think we so, all learn Spanish through Coquito. <laughs> She's so like, I'm, I'm bringing all these books from my granddaughter. <laughs> It's like, here we are, we're going to learn through Coquito, and I would learn from Coquito, and it was just, I was like, oh, this is really cool, and so I was able to really, like, grasp it a little bit more, and, you know, I had a different relationship with my grandmother, but then she left, um, 
And it was just an experience that I was, you know, I will always appreciate, always remember with her um, being able to really kind of speak the language. But I knew even then there's always a sense of diversity. There was always a sense of just not feeling that I fit in, especially in the South, right? Because people, if they want to understand, they want to understand. If they don't want to understand, they don't, right? Your ear is tuned to, to hearing certain things. And if you're not used to it, you're like, what did you say? I didn't understand what you meant. So I'm like, so then you almost have to speak it the same. What I meant was, and almost speak it the same way. And then they're like, oh, okay. And then they get it. So I have a tendency to do that. <laughs> so if I know that I'm going to be visiting my parents, my Southern accent comes out. If I'm around other people who are from up North, then my, I don't know, my New York or my Philly comes out or something. However, but yeah. But anyways, the whole acculturation process was definitely very different. My migration process was very different. Um, so I was very Americanized, um, but I always tried to embrace being from Peru or speaking Spanish, you know, Castellano, you know, so being able to really embrace that and, and to know that I had that. I have, I think it's so interesting that not only did you have your Peruvian Spanish accent thing that you, you had to learn it and then you had to learn the Southern accent. And then yeah. when you're further North, you have to do the Philly accent. Um, and you do the Southern accent really well, actually. <laughs> I can tell you grew up in the South. So I'm very impressed that your parents were that adventurous to, to go yeah. from Connecticut to, to Panama. I am I'm really impressed. They sound like very interesting people to want to <laughs> have taken that trip. Would you uh, describe them as adventurers even now? Yeah, so my parents are in their 80s, right? And they still own um, a, a farm business. So yeah, and they're still working it. Uh, they still own a farm and they're still doing the work that involves with it. Obviously not going out there and doing the work, but definitely manage a lot of things like that. So always been very adventurous. And they're the type of people who have always been you know, we're, we're going to try. What's the worst thing that can happen? They're going to tell us no. So I think when I think back of my school story of like going in a certain school, what's the worst thing that can happen? The worst they can tell me is no. And I can just keep trying and, and keep, keep trying. Sigue luchando. Adelante. Yeah. You got that lesson from your parents. It seems. I did. I also wanted to um, touch on when you were a little kid and you heard your mom speak Spanish and you seem to have a little bit of fear. Mm -hmm. um, and at such a young age, mm -hmm. we're able to pick up when we're not welcome in a place, yeah. when we're not. Did you, was that fear? Did you feel in, in danger? When, when, you know, when you were too different than your community? Yeah. So, you know, when I was little, I probably couldn't identify that emotion as fear, but it was definitely fear in the sense of they're going to pick on me. They're going to pick on her. They're going to say something. They might do something to her, you know, being protective of my family, being protective of my mom and making sure that she was okay. So I think as a little child, as a child, small child of just being able to pick up on that, feeling that I didn't want my mom to be different that way, but I knew that we were different. And that's, that's the, 
that's what it is. I mean, there's no way around it. We are who we are. And, and it's coming to terms to embrace that diversity, coming to terms to embrace, you know, that I might not fit this box or that box or this box, be somewhere in the middle, right? Um, I'll fit a box. And I get excited when I hear people who might not fit the box like I do. And I, I gravitate towards that. So it's pretty exciting to be able to do that. But yes, it was definitely fear. It was definitely a sense of wanting to belong, right? As everybody wants to belong. It's like, I just want to be loved. I just want to belong. Take away the cultural things. You just want to be accepted for who you are. Like, this is who I am. I'm a little different. I'm not not vanilla. I'm not chocolate. I'm kind of like a cinnamon, you know? So I'm not really like... I don't know, maybe a coffee or like, I don't know, like something, a mix of something, you know? So you try to rationalize, right? What you can do and who you are. So it was definitely very challenging in that sense. Even when I was growing up, just having kids who just accepted me when I went to, when we moved outside of Atlanta. So when we were living in, when I was living in Atlanta, I was going to a school that was very diverse and it had different things, kids from all over the world. So I saw a lot of diversity and it was great. And then we moved out to the country and I literally, I remember the day when I walked into the sixth grade and I saw just a sea of blue eyed, blonde headed children. And they all turned around all at the same time. And they were like, like, who is this, right? Who, who is this? And I couldn't identify with that, right? I couldn't identify with, with any of them. And it was hard when they stereotyped, do you speak Mexican? Is your name Maria? Did your mom make tacos at home? Jesus, no, none of the above. <laughs> So for me, it was difficult to process that. Like, gosh, you sound just so ignorant. I, I would think in my mind, I'm like, so having someone to fit in, it was always difficult. But then trying to find someone that you could fit in, it took time. I want to highlight that even at a young age, you felt protective of your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't think we give kids enough immigrant kids enough credit (laughs) and so many of us serve also as translators for our parents right so Mm -hmm. we're put in a position to protect our parents in a way and I you hearing your story about you know feeling a little bit fearful perhaps a little bit in danger of having your mom speak Spanish and having others pick on her or you know marginarle it reminds me of I think I was, my dad, we were driving from somewhere with my dad, the whole family, and he got stopped by a cop Mm. and they got into a little bit of an argument, I think, because I think I was maybe 10 years old and I think the cop was asking for like papers or something. And Mm. my dad knew that you could not ask for papers. Like we can give you a driver's license. We can give you a registration, but you cannot ask for papers. Even though we were legally there, it was kind of like the principle Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And I already kind of, even at 10 years old, maybe 11, I I felt like 
this could escalate, like this could escalate and then we're all in danger. Right. And I started bawling in the back of the car. (laughs) I started bawling because I didn't know what to do. And I was trying to translate for my dad because the cop was saying something. I'm like, dad, that's not what he's saying. And then my dad's giving me like, he's responding in his attitude. And I'm like, I'm not going to reply like that to the cop. Right. (laughs) I'm going to filter out. I'm gonna filter. Out. I'm gonna filter out certain things. Yeah. But then I got so frustrated, unable to solve this problem, this in yeah. front of me, and I started bawling in in the back of the car. And then my brother was younger; he probably started crying. So the cop was just like, "All right, this is just a family. Like maybe my dad was speeding or something. I don't know. Okay, yeah. all right, go. You know. Right. And, um. But it's it's that I guess it just reminded me of like. Yes, as kids, as immigrant yeah. kids, we are so protective of our, our parents, yeah. of our family. But at the same time, we feel like this powerlessness that we're just yeah. kids and we can't do we're much. Just, and and yeah. yeah, so uh, I don't know. I just wanted to share that. I guess like your story kind of helped me reflect on that. How would you say that immigration has changed you and how has immigration changed your parents? Yeah, so I would say immigration has changed me in the sense of probably grasping that idea when I was a little older, but knowing what that was, that term, et cetera, and like people coming from all over the place and thinking, well, America is a melting pot. We're all immigrants, right? That's what you kind of learn. But then as you come across the different cultures and things like that, of people who are not exposed to that and they say to you, mean and vicious things and it hurts you you know and you're like no but that's not who I am you are immigrant also like what so it it just it would make me reflect on how people would be and not understanding how they were of immigration or how immigrants can you know come in all shapes sizes forms places etc so that was always very exciting for me to be able to bond with people who are from different countries A lot of my friends are from different countries now and I feel a bond with them. So, and I just, the immigration process in itself, it's just, everybody's just trying to live a better life. We're just trying to all make it. And I think that's what the immigrant idea is. We're all just trying to make it. We're all just trying to live a better life. We're just trying to do better for ourselves, our families, the next generation. And so when we have to come here, that's what we're looking for. We want better things for our life and our situation. So I think that's the biggest immigration kind of take back that I would, you know, really emphasize is we're all from different places. We're all just trying to get there. We're all just trying to get to one place. Yeah, we're all fighting our own our own battles. Yeah. They might yeah. not be they might not be visible to everybody else, but we all have our own internal battles. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say are, what aspects or what values from the Peruvian culture do you treasure the most? And same, what values or aspects of the American culture do you treasure the most? And how do you balance those two? Yeah, so I will have to say that not understanding the Peruvian culture at first because it was just like, oh, that's just the way mom is, right? That's just the way dad is. And just kind of identifying that where we're from is, it's a big step. So this is what mom does. This is what dad does. This is the way we are. We're a family. We come together. These are the things. So the family piece, right? 
in America, obviously, everyone's very independent. And you've probably heard that story many, many times in a lot of other scenarios. But it's just knowing that at the end of the day, your family's there for you. Be it how big or small it is, it's they're always going to be there. And I guess the other thing is just getting excited when I see certain things that have anything to do with Peru and people know it and people who are close to me, they're like, oh, look, it's a llama. I was like, I know, I love them too. <laughs> I, I get it. And alpacas and cuñas, you know, like I love them all. So I, I love, I love the fact that I can about like certain foods or even restaurants here that open in, in the Charlotte area that are a Peruvian fusion or anything like that, I get excited. So able to really like go support those, you know, places and get really excited to share that with my friends. And, and I guess for the American piece, I, I embrace, I embrace America. I love America. (laughs) So I feel, I understand why my parents came here because I didn't actually go back to Peru until I was 21. So it was a long time. We just, it was never an opportunity for me to go. And I went with my sister and I, when I basically got out of the airport and I'm going with her and we're going and I'm like, oh yeah, I know why we're, <laughs> I know why we came to America to better our life. And it's not that they didn't have that because they, they lived in a, you know, great neighborhood and, and a great life in, in Lima, but it was more of just, you know, understanding. And now I understand now I understand why you came here. You wanted better for us. You wanted to improve, like you want that for the next generations to come. You just want the better things. Don't get me wrong. I love the things about Peru and I love the things about America and their different ways. And they're both great. It's just embracing both of them. Yeah. We don't have to choose. We can be both. We can, we can be both. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's go to the rapid fire question. So okay. I'll ask you a couple of questions and then just, just tell me, you know, what comes to mind first. Um, Plato peruano preferido? Uh, causa limeña. Causa, nice. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, chicha morada o emoliente? Uh, chicha morada. Chicha morada. Uh, Algarrobina o pisco sour? Pisco sour, but let me tell you about Algarrobina the other day. So my niece and I did a Zoom call and we ended up like, let's make Algarrobina like together and like try it. So we did a Zoom call and we both made it at the same time. We're like, yeah, we'll stick with Pisco sours. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, does that mean you don't like Algarrobina or just just didn't do it right? (laughs) It's just, it's just different, right? Because we're so used to it. We didn't know even what to expect, right? Because we didn't. We didn't have like, it's not like we had all the stores here that we could just go get Algarrobina when we were kids, right? Or our parents could get that. So we weren't like exposed to that. Yes, Pisco, right? That's a little easier to get. But we're like, oh, I guess we're still used to Pisco sours when we actually have them. <laughs> uh, now I'm going to go want to get a drink. <laughs> uh, what about mazamorra morada or arroz con leche? Um, God, I like them both, but arroz, arroz con leche. I grew up with that. It was, yeah. I guess it was the easy thing to make. So my mom always made it. <laughs> I think every, every dish, almost every dish we have, we serve it with rice. So I'm not surprised we have a dessert. <laughs> I mean, where do you not have rice? So it was kind of easy <laughs> to make. That one you had yeah. the ingredients for. Um, what about wine festejo? 
Um, I'm going to go with Vesejo, but I like them both because they both remind me of just like anytime you hear either of them, you know, you're just like, oh, Peru, my heart, you know, so it's just both. That's true. Uh, what about your favorite place in Peru? So I'm going to say probably just family members' homes, um, but I love even just something as Americanized or cliche as just like Larcomar or Miraflores. It's just nice because it just kind of reminds you of like just being in a different spot. You know, you see the beach and you see, you know, so many different buildings and, you know, so much diversity, even something so simple like that. I mean, that area is beautiful. Like yeah. the ocean view, the restaurants yeah. there. It's a beautiful yeah. place. Yeah. 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 Um, what about your favorite uh, Peruvian artist? This could be an author, a singer, um, any any type of art. Um, so Chabuca Granda. Yeah, like I I remember just hearing that growing up when I would you know with my mom. So that's definitely something that always sticks out. Um, is there a particular song that when you hear it, you're like takes you back to Peru? Flor de la Canela. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, I feel like, and everybody's done a, a different version of that, but it's still like, oh, that's Peru. Yeah. That's automatic for me, yeah. All right, so as we wrap up, what, what is your message to Peruvians in Peru and what is your message to Peruvians here in the US? Yeah, so Peruvians in Peru, los quiero mucho. Um, gracias por siempre ser tan amable y queridos siempre y siempre luchar adelante. Um, the Americans, Peruvian Americans here, you know, it's, we're all in a journey. We're all a little different. And when we can find one another, you know, embrace one another um, and support one another um, and know that we love one another and care for one another. It doesn't matter what background we come from or where we're from, you know, that, you know, to be supportive of one another. I love that. And that is one of the many reasons I started the podcast, because I do want us to connect. I do want us to share our stories with each other. I do want us to validate each other's story and to support each other. All of us are trying to make a contribution in our own area. And I think the more we can support each other, the more all of us as a community can, can grow. Thank you so much, Claudia, for joining me in this episode. I really appreciate it. If anybody wants to connect with you, um, how can they do so? Yeah, so through Instagram is pretty much the, the basic one. And then also through LinkedIn, also Claudia Ramos. I'm in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. All right. Thank you so much, Claudia. I really appreciate your time. And I'm sure all of our audience learned so much about mental health <laughs> in this episode and about your story. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Déjame que te cuente el email. Déjame que te diga la gloria. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right, talk to you soon. Ciao.